Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. Hello, my name is Heather Hurley, and my family, uh, Les, my husband, and our two kids, Harper and Holt, have been a part of what's going on at TDC since prayers were being lifted up in the Causey's living room. Uh, It has been a blessing to be here and watch the Lord do what He does, and um, I'm just thankful for the Door Church. So please join me in reading Romans 1, 18 through 25, as we begin our time together. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Thank you, Heather. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Brad, and I'm the campus pastor here, Um, and I'm just honored to be with you to open God's Word. Um, we're in a sermon series on the book of Romans called, that we're calling Justified, because it's kind of the, the theme of the book, is, is justification. It's how can sinners like you and me, I don't know if you know that, you're a sinful person, um, how can you be made right with a holy and righteous God? And so when we open this letter, so Paul is an apostle. He's a guy set apart by God for God's work. And he has written this letter to these people in Rome. These are Christians in Rome. He's never met them. He loves them because they're united in Christ. So he's written to them. And in the beginning, he's like, hey, I'm addressing you. I want to come see you, but I want you to know these things. And then he explains in, in verse 17, which is kind of the thesis of the book, that the righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? Well, it means that we need to be Righteous to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God, and that through faith in Christ, we can be. So we don't self-manufacture our righteousness, we don't self-manufacture our goodness, but through Christ we can be made righteous. And so he's, he's really talked to them, and now he's going to, in, in our text today, go in the third person. And he's talking about them. He's going to say they, and he's describing a godless people who suppress the truth of God. But then we see in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, therefore, you have no excuse. So what Paul is doing is kind of a rhetorical device, but he's describing some people, and then he's bringing it to bear 
on the people he's talking to. And I, I pray that as we read this, this is what would happen for us. That this would not be third person scripture, but first person scripture. And so what Paul reveals in verses 18 through 25 is a, a fundamental and should be sobering truth, which is that we are inclined to live a lie. We're inclined to live a lie. And it's not so much, I mean, Halloween is coming, and so some little kids will dress up in dinosaur costumes or superheroes or whatever. They, they know they're like acting a lie. That's not really what Paul is talking about. It's not so much that we put on falsehood and walk in that in our identity. But if you want to use a different metaphor, it's like we're librarians. And we're selecting the truths of God that fit into our truth, our narrative. We're curators of truth, suppressors of truth. We stuff it down. The word even means in, in, the, in the suppress the truth, to like lock it away, to put it under restraint. We keep the truth at bay because the truth has something to say to us and about us. So the, the brain actually in, in, in traumatic events, if you get in a car accident or if you're the victim of crime, the, the brain does this naturally. It shuts down parts of the brain that, that, that help with recall. This is why I have a friend who's a victim advocate at a police department, and she tells the detectives and the, the, the officers, don't question the victims immediately because their brain is not ready yet. It shuts down, and this is part of our design. It's part of our wiring, and that's a good thing. God helps us deal with tragedies, but that's not what Paul is talking about. There's nothing natural about this. He's talking about the sinful, willful suppression of the capital T truth of God's power and his glory and his goodness. It is intentional suppression. And, and when we do this, we invite misery into our lives. Misery. But here is what I, I would say and what the gospel will tell us, and we'll get there. It's going to get dark before it gets light. Is it through Christ we can embrace the truth, and this is key, that we can trust God, that we can trust him and come under his truth and not only suppress the truth, run away from that, begin to embrace the truth and willingly, happily, come under his sovereignty in his dominion. And so our text breaks down into three nice parts and we'll actually address them in kind of reverse sequence. There's the revelation of God. God reveals himself to us. There's the rejection of God. We reject the God who has revealed himself to us. There's the wrath of God, which is the due consequence for rejecting the God who has revealed himself to you. But that's not the ending. We won't end in a place with no light because we will then look at the rescue of God. What does Jesus have to say about truth-suppressing people? So number one, the revelation of God. God is a revealing God. He is a God of revelation. He wants you to know 
all about him. And he is not shy. And this is very personal. So some of you remember, I know that Heather and the Hurleys remember, some of you remember, before we were in this space, we met at First Baptist Argyle on Saturday nights. When we planted this campus in March of 2020, we were looking for a place to, to gather, to meet, to, to praise God. And we asked around, and, and finally we were kind of on our last option, to be honest with you. And First Baptist, Bobby Cates, who's a dear friend and a brother, awesome dude, he said, you know what, yeah, that, that sounds awesome. We would love for you all to, to worship here. He said, but you, you need to come to a, a members meeting where we vote on this. That's how our church is governed. And so I said, okay, great. So I, I came, I was nervous. I'll be honest with you. I was nervous. I was prayed up. I was ready for the meeting. I knew they were going to ask me, you know, about theology and how we align and all these things. So um, by God's grace and the generosity of our, our dear friends at FBC, um, they, they voted yes which was just the grace of God. And so as I walked out of that lobby, which I can just picture in my mind's eye so clearly, I just remember feeling the favor of God and the gratitude that he had provided this campus a place to gather for a while. It was, it was a miracle. And as I walked outside, there was this sunset. And it was like a painting only God could paint. It was orange and purple and red, and it was just, I mean, it was distracting. It was hard to look at the road. It was incredible. And what I realized in that moment, this is very personal. That, that God's general revelation of his beauty, of his glory, of his creativity, it was personal for me in that moment. God is very intimate with his revelation. And so here is what I would say, and I believe that our text would support this. There are no anonymous sunsets. There is no accidental beauty. None of the beautiful things that you observe in this world are random. But they're reflections of the glory of God. And so in verse 20, it says that God declares his power and his divine nature clearly, and he has since the beginning of time. This is not new. He's always been showing us who he is. Creation, that which he has made, publishes the glory of God. It screams about who he is. And so we see a clear demonstration of who God is and what he's made. Theologians call this general revelation. So just looking at the attributes our text lays out, it is generally revealed to all people and all times that God is powerful. Has lightning ever struck near you? You can feel it in your heart. It's terrifying. That's a clear revelation of the power of God. And not only that, it is generally revealed to all people at all times that God is divine, that there is a God, that God is God. And this is our problem because we don't want him to be, because we want to be God. So we reject God. 
We reject him. Verse 20 says we're all without excuse because we are all generally aware that he is there, that he is powerful, that he is God, that these things have been clearly perceived. Not murky at all. We are on the hook for our response. We are stewards of this reality. And so Paul is not saying you can be saved by looking at an oak tree. You must hear the gospel. Salvation comes by hearing and responding to the gospel of Christ. Romans 10 says this in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I hope you hear that as an invitation to you this morning. And then it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. General revelation, the beauty of a painted sunset, declares the glory of God, the divinity of God, the power of God. But it is not salvific. It does not save. The gospel does. God became man. And he put on human skin. He walked the human path perfectly. Without sin, completely holy, completely righteous, not even a a sinful inkling or predisposition. He walked that path purely to die for the impure, to atone for their sins, the impure being us, you and me. He did not stay dead. But in power, he rose from the grave. He was resurrected, conquering sin and death, proving his claims to who he was. And one day he will return. You believe this. This is the gospel. By faith, you believe this and you are a Christian. And you might say, what about those who haven't heard? Yes, Missions and evangelism, this should drive an angst in you to want to tell people about Jesus. And you should be driven to to think about in overseas context, absolutely, what about your unbelieving neighbor? What about your unbelieving heart? So while many reject the gospel of Christ in particular, he is a stumbling block, he's offensive. What I just said, it's offensive means you're a sinner that needs saving, and some of you don't like that at all. But some, some reject Christ in particular, but many more reject to the idea of God in general. And so our default mode, verse 18, is to suppress the truth. We live as if God does not exist and as if he does not have reign over us. This is not an issue of science. 
It is not an issue of the historical validity of the Christian faith. It is not an issue of philosophy or of logic. You can check the evidence. We're not logical people. We're emotional people. And the evidence is not lacking, but the truth of the matter is we just don't like God. There's a few reasons for this. Number one, his sovereignty conflicts with our autonomy. To say that God is all-powerful, has all authority, is to say that I don't. To say that I'm created by the one who is the creator means I am subservient to him. So in 1 Chronicles 29, I want you to see the proper response. This is available for us to respond in this way, but this is against sin nature. But listen to how beautiful this is. By the way, David, the guy who this text is talking about, was a mess. But he was a man who loved God. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. We object to God's sovereignty because we have trust issues. The powerful one, can he be trusted? What if he gets my life wrong? What if he misanswers my prayers? What if his sovereignty leads me to suffering? It can be a trust issue. So we object to his sovereignty. Number two, his holiness conflicts with our wickedness. A.W. Tozer once said that when we come up against the holiness of God, when we actually see it for ourselves, there's actually a form of like trauma that we experience. But being sobered by the holiness of God because it shows that we are not holy. This happened to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, and he is shuddering by this. So it says this in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. 
and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the holiness of God, and he's like, oh, no. Because I'm not. We're a people of unclean lips. His holiness exposes us. Number three, his omniscience annoys us. Why is it so offensive that people stare at you? I'm not going to do this to you. It's very awkward. In fact, it makes me not want to hold my eye contact for fear of doing that to you. But it's intrusive. Like if someone just stares a hole into you, it's like, what is your deal? Why do we hate that? We hate being exposed. We want to be seen, but we don't want to be stared at. God's omniscience, listen to me. He sees everything in you. You have no secrets, none. Your thoughts are not secret. Your past is not secret. Your future is not secret. He knows, and we don't like this. Psalm 139 says this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. If you are a son or a daughter of God, this is the most beautiful music that God knows you, that he sees you, that there is not a corner of you, a dark spot, an embarrassing aspect that he does not see, that he will not redeem. And that Christ's blood has not covered. But if you are a truth suppressor, this feels like being found with a searchlight. Run though you may. He will search you. He will know you. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it. And so God has clearly revealed himself to us and we don't like it. And so like a toddler covering her eyes, we're like, we're invisible. No, not that part of you, God. That doesn't have bearing on me. Maybe, maybe, we'll accept that God exists. Yes, there's a God. But his sovereignty, we, we, we want to crowd that out because maybe his sovereignty affects our bank account. 
we'll file that away. Or maybe, maybe his, his good design for our bodies crowds out our sexuality and what we want to do. So we just, we filed that away. And so we may not outright suppress the truth of God, but we will selectively suppress that which makes us squirm because we have pet sins that we love. Or maybe you're like, no, actually, Brad, I, I, I reject outright the truth of God. Nope, no God. I'd say you do not live with integrity of your own belief. Here's how I know this. If there is no God, full suppression, accidental sunsets, all of that, I, I could go on. Nothing means anything and we're all going nowhere and it will suddenly end with darkness and nothing. And no one lives like this. Not one. Your life betrays you because you're not living as if nothing means anything. You live in a search for beauty, in a search for meaning, in a search for love, all of which do mean something. But more common is that selective curation of truth, at least more common here in Argyle, Texas. We'll grant the reality of God. We just suppress the parts that we don't like. And here's what happens when we do that. We deify ourselves. You are designed to come under the truth. It is supreme. You are not. The capital T truth, the truth of God, the word of God. When we suppress the truth of God, we flip that which effectively puts us on the throne, puts us in the center of the universe. And this may be subtle, it may be blatant to you, but what are you suppressing? What part of God, his, his sovereignty, his power, his say over you, are you filing away? What part of his holiness offends you? What part of his omniscience annoys you? How are you suppressing the truth of God? Maybe outright, maybe selectively. Verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, meaning the people who suppress the truth of God. The wrath of God, I, I think we, we often think, when we think of the wrath of God, we think the final judgment that's coming. Absolutely. That's part of it. If you suppress the truth of God and push out the reality of God, at some point you'll get exactly what you want, which is eternal separation from him, and that's called hell. But Paul is talking about present tense. The wrath of God is revealed. He's talking about now. What does that look like? What does real-time wrath feel like? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts 
of their hearts to impurity. This is called the passive wrath of God when he says, go ahead and live the lie of your truth. When he gives us over, this is the path to utter misery. And so let me tell you something. If you are a Christ follower in here, you thank God when he doesn't answer your prayers the way you would like. Thank God for no, because you don't want what you think you want, and he loves you enough to guide you in his sovereignty. Praise him for no. Your desires that he talks about here may or may not be bad in and of themselves. You may desire to be physically fit or healthy, but you may have an over-desire that it's like, I actually kind of want to be a specimen so people look at me. That's called vanity. That's glory-stealing. It is also the path to misery. Maybe you want to be financially successful. There's nothing wrong with that. Proverbs is full of how you should work hard and save money and, and, and do right in your job. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting to do well. Some of us want to do so well, we would never say this, but that we can be a little God and we can call all the shots in our lives. That's wicked. And if you get there, if God gives you that, you will be perpetually disappointed because you make an awful God and so do I. When God gives us over to our truth-suppressed reality, it is misery. And let me tell you, when God's light does not shine, it gets very, very dark. We ignore the reality of God at our own peril. You can leave here and you can say, you know, I don't, I don't think gravity is real. I believe I can fly. You can't. Jump off the roof. Heavy things fall hard. So it goes with every aspect of our lives. God has an order, has a truth, has a design. You curate your own truth at your own peril. Paul says that we're without excuse. He says everyone that has eyes to see those painted sunsets, ears to hear birds singing, taste buds to taste pineapple, skin to feel the fall weather in Texas, you're without excuse. On the hook. And you want to know who's really really, really without excuse? You and me. Because not only have we experienced the general revelation of God, his invisible attributes clearly being displayed in nature, we've heard the gospel. We've heard the saving message of the work of Christ. We're on the hook for our response to that. 
The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, which is all of our ungodlikeness, which leads to unrighteousness, which is to say injustice. We are unjust people. We are selfish people. We are sinful people, and we're stupid enough to think that we can live our own truth. And this is the path to separation from God. But I have very, very good news. I know that's very, very dark. But I have very, very good news. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 with me. It should be on the screen. And I want you to know if you put your faith in Christ, this is true for you. And this is when the windows fling open and the light comes in. For God has not designed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no giving over for you to live the lie of your truth. There is no misery of you getting what you want and finding out it's not what you wanted. But God will guide you. And this is the path to being happy. I know you want to be happy. I want to be happy. True happiness is glad submission to God's authority. And so after Isaiah is horrified by the holiness of God, terrified, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Traumatized, you might even say. Verses six and seven come. This should be on the screen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the work of God. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Come into my presence, Isaiah. I know you are a man of unclean lips. He says, Come into my presence. I know you are a person with an unclean past and with secret sins with selfish proclivities. He says, come in by the blood of Christ. And this rescue is both a future inheritance that is payable on death, eternity with him, that's enough. But there's a present inheritance of walking in the leadership of God, of being in the stream of his sovereignty where you can stop your striving. God's nature is clearly revealed in the things that he has made, and it is beautiful. And even more clearly, his character and his nature is revealed in the incarnation of Christ. When we see Jesus, we behold him, we see who God is, that he is merciful that he is patient, that he is just, that he is trustworthy. It 
if you begin to see the cross, your trust issues should evaporate. And his sovereignty should be more beautiful. And so don't you want to honor this God? Don't you want to walk with the God of the sunsets? Don't you want to walk with the creator of the universe? You can through Christ. The opposite of suppressing the truth, of pushing it down and filing it away, is to embrace it and to gladly come under the headship of God who clearly demonstrates his mercy through the life of Jesus. And this is for you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that's already you, may his light shine forth into those dark, suppressed places in your heart where you think he won't shine, he will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the revelation of your beauty and the things that have been made. We see you. We see what you can do. We see your power. We see your divinity. We are without excuse, your word says. We're on the hook. Even further than that, we've heard the gospel. We've sat under the reality of your work, Jesus, the work of your redemption, which is offered to all of us. You say, come. Come into my presence. Embrace the reality of my sovereignty and my goodness. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to digest this word. That you would help us to begin to see clearly, whether right now or tomorrow or a week, show us where we're suppressing your truth. Bring us under conviction that we may repent and throw open the windows of our soul to the light of your truth. You are so trustworthy. You are so good. And we thank you. So now as we sing, unite our voices, our minds, unite our souls, Lord, in praise. You are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.